Hey folks, as promised, I have author Ron Francel back on the pod to talk about his latest book, Death Row, a crime fiction. I know, but this is a true crime podcast. Don't worry. Ron and I chat everything from the book itself to Ron's writing to how true crime influences art and entertainment. And as always, I have a short update from Desiree Tinoco. I'm Renee Nelson, and this is Unsolved Wyoming. And because of the nature of this interview, where Ron and I are talking back and forth pretty quickly, it is a raw interview because there are so many pieces of it that I just wanted to make sure stayed intact that going in and editing out the ums, ands, and everything just seemed arbitrary and sort of broke up the flow. So I hope you enjoy it. It was a lot of fun. Thank you again for joining me. I really appreciate it, Ron. And so uh, you are a fan favorite, so I couldn't not get you back on oh, the show. Oh, you're too nice. And I'm actually, I'm glad to do it. I um, It's not just that this is a way that I can get in touch with readers, but it's a way for me to talk directly with people in Wyoming where I, I just... I just have a soft spot in my heart and they have been very loyal readers of my work and uh, this is fun. So thank you. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I can't agree more. I think um, the people in Wyoming, they, they do love their Wyomingites who have kind of gone and done some pretty amazing things. They're pretty, they are pretty loyal, aren't they? And so, well, it's an amazing week for you. You have launched a new book, which is why you're on the show today. And so can you tell me what number book this is for you? This is number 19. 19. That's Hard to believe. Gosh, that's incredible. And I know I congratulated you on, on Facebook, on social media. You have a great social media presence. And so, which... I will say not a lot of authors do, or at least the ones that I follow. So I think that's a really smart thing that you do and that you interact and you chat with people. I think that's incredible too. But uh, you said it never gets old. So you have had 19 book launches. 19. I, I honestly, uh, if I go back to the beginning and when I'm imagining that I could or should write a book, um, all, all I wanted to do was write a book. I didn't, it, the publishing wasn't part of the equation. Um, and so I set about writing a book, uh, which turned out to be Angel Fire, my first book, and it was a novel. Um, but at, at, even as I'm putting the end on it, I'm, I'm not thinking about publishing. Because I didn't think that's what, that was a realistic expectation. And, and I think I've talked about it to your class. 
there's a certain chip on our shoulder that we have in Wyoming that somehow we're not all that, that we're not, um, we don't play in that ballpark. You know, that, that that's for New Yorkers and Los Angeles people, it, that, that we're not capable of that. And um, so it just wasn't on my mind. And then when it was published and then, you know, few years later when it was named to be to on the San Francisco's li- San Francisco Chronicles list of 100 best novels of the 20th century west um nobody was more surprised than I was but yeah here now 19 and uh, it's been fun and and frankly Every time one of them comes out, I still feel like that guy that wrote that first book when he first uh, saw it, first held it like a child, you know, Um, it was, it was then and it is now just simply amazing to me. I, I'm sure it is. And I, I do love, because one of the things that I think not maybe a lot of people know about your story, Ron, is you were kind of a later, not a later in life writer, you know, because you had this amazing journalism career. You have worked all over, you know, Denver, you know, the, you know in other areas too, yeah. you know, doing journalism. But when did you publish your first book? Uh, it was 1998. Uh, I was, when it came out, I think I was 41 years old. Uh, it was... Um, Again, it it was not just a goal reached. It was it was amazing to me that it it was real. Um, but yeah, forty one years old. By the same token, uh, I I'd, I'd been reading books since I was you know seven years old or maybe six. I don't know, but. Um, and writing things. And a friend of mine and I were the founders of our school newspaper in uh, junior high school and and I'm told they still have it Uh, although I'm sure it was we did it on a little mimeograph machine which most of your listeners don't even remember what that would be but um, so so in I think I calculated one time that in one form or another my byline has appeared at least once a month since I was 12 years old. That's incredible. I love that. (laughs) I love that. But I also love that piece of, you know, being 41 years old and, you know, going for, you know, completing that goal of writing your novel and then getting it published. And so, because I think especially young people have this kind of misconception, right? You have to know what you're going to do, go for it and then do that thing. And, you know, going after a a goal like that later on in life is pretty amazing. And I think such an, an inspiration to others who are listening that there's a book you want to write or there's a course you want to take or there's something that you have wanted to do, but just have it, just go for it, right? Absolutely. There, you know, the, the dreaming is important. Um, I think at least in terms of of writing and maybe a hundred thousand other things I can think of, uh, practice 
is important. I think today the availability of self-publishing platforms and technology uh, lead people to believe that they can decide they're going to write a novel on Friday and they can clatter away on their word processor all weekend and push the button on Monday and have a novel. And, and in fact, they can. That doesn't mean it's a good novel. It's not even, probably not even, uh, worthy of the pixels it consumes. Uh, I, I think that's where we fool ourselves is in saying I, on Friday, I identify as a novelist. I don't, I've never done it. I've never tried. I've never studied. I've never practiced. I might not even have read many, but, but I identify today as a novelist. And by the end of next week, I will be raking in the royalties and uh, I might as well put a, an order in on my uh, Tesla now. <laughs> I mean, it's a, high lofty lofty aspirations it right? is. lofty aspirations and, and, and so, you have to practice, practice yeah i, I totally agree practice. that's what and starting a newspaper at 12 years old does is you right. start practicing and you start learning the effect that a word can have on somebody you you start learning what the value of a story in our life is but you don't wake up on a Friday morning and say, hey, you know, I'm going to be a novelist without knowing those things. Uh, well, you, that's not true. You can wake up and say that, but you're not going to be a good one unless you practice and unless you understand those things through practice. So, yeah, dreaming is important, but prepare yourself for it. Don't don't just say, look, I want to avoid the rejection that every great novelist has. I want to, I want to avoid the editing by people because every word I write is a pearl. Uh, then you're not ready and you need to go through that. Definitely. I mean, obviously as an English instructor, I'm a huge component <laughs> you know, of, of, uh, you know, drafting and practicing and, right. and being open to feedback because so many students, take feedback as a personal attack, right? And right, not exactly. recognizing that it's a critical tool to improve. And that by being open-minded to feedback, you're only going to get better. But it definitely is hard when you have students who are not open to feedback and take it personally and think you're awful because, oh my gosh, they, she just hates me. Hey. And it's not, it's and not and that's just her opinion. And I have mine. Yeah. And, and when you start seeing editing and revision and suggestions as an attack and in, instead of seeing it as an attack and you start to see it as a, a compliment or, or a real aid, then you haven't gotten there. Everybody needs an editor. I need an editor. My, my God, in, in my books that have been published, I've been horrified to find typos after five and six professional editors have read it and I've read it. And it's, it's amazing. 
everybody needs an editor. Everybody. It still happens. I totally agree. I was, I can't remember which book. Oh, I was reach. I was reading Stacey Willingham's second book and I, I saw a pretty glaring typo and it's, I don't know why it's so thrilling as an English instructor to find them in professional writing, but you know, when you do, you're like, Oh goodness. Yeah. You know, human error still happens. Right. And so there's going to be typos or some whatever flaws that come through and does happen, but the overall aspect, the integrity of the story isn't affected as a result of, you know, a typo here, a typo there through the, you know, a strenuous editing process. That's completely different. Well, we, I know that there are people out there who, readers, who really want a book to be perfect. And if, if, it's, if it's got one typo, that's a disappointment. If it's got two typos, they're starting to get worried. If it's got three typos, they put it down and they never come back to that book. And they might not come back to that writer. Right. And again, not the writer's fault, right? There's an editing process. Exactly. <laughs> Yeah, and so and and I think that's just lack of knowledge about the publishing industry and and everything. And so, what's really cool about this book, Death Row, is that it is a crime fiction, which is part of your repertoire. But what your you know kind of bread and butter is is true crime. Yeah, exactly. And so, can you tell us about why you ended up having to? Because I know the story, but can you tell listeners why you ended up with a crime fiction this time. Sure. Uh, You know, my true crimes, as you know, uh, like Shadow Man and The Darkest Night and Alice and Gerald, the ones that are kind of in the Wyoming, Montana mold there, uh, they're the product of old school research and investigation. I'm I'm an old fashioned reporter. I believe that I that I have to be there. I have to be up close. Uh, I have to experience things firsthand. And those sensory experiences tell me everything I want to tell a reader. I write narrative nonfiction. And that means I tell utterly true stories, but I'm using tools from a novelist's toolbox, like foreshadowing and character development and uh, setting details and, and dialogue and things like that. They're all true. It, they're just the kinds of things that you expect to see in a novel, not a history book. Uh, and, and it relies very heavily on these tiniest details, what I can see and hear and taste and all that. Um, so, uh, Along comes COVID. (laughs) I mean, suddenly I can't book a hotel room. I can't get on an airplane. I can't casually pump gas. Uh, I certainly can't go out to eat in a diner. And most of all, there was no chance that I was going to talk face to face with the, the couple hundred people that I typically do in my true crime. So what am I going to do? Well, I locked myself in my office with 30 years of experience in journalism and in true crime writing. And uh, I imagined death row. Uh, There's a lot of my experience as a journalist and true crime writer in there. Uh, But it, it is a crime fiction. 
and it was fun. I I think that's I think that's what's so incredible and definitely why I wanted to have you on the show for this segment specifically is to talk about how, you know, obviously your experience as a true crime invest, you know, investigative journalist and researcher and, you know, incredibly successful books had influenced, you know, your characters, your story. And so, you know, I've had the privilege to to take a peek, you know, prior to the launch day, which was which was really exciting. And there's a couple of elements that I really love about this book specifically. One, I like that obviously it's, you know, where this the setting is and you can share that with us. But then two, the characters are just so incredibly well-rounded. And I, I think you don't necessarily, and it, they do feel like real people. And I guess that's because maybe I know you so well as a writer, so that could be it, but I don't think it is. But when we've talked before, you had mentioned that you know, you're pulling inspiration from people that you know, and you can really see that building into these characters. I also love the age group of these gentlemen. And so, um, you, you don't have to call them gentlemen. They're old farts. That's what they are. <laughs> yes. And so I, I think that's kind of what's really fun about this novel. And so, uh, I plan on um, ordering a copy for my father-in-law because he's around this age. Because he's an old friend. Yeah, Because okay. <laughs> so, the, the age group is amazing. And so tell us about the inspiration about, you know, obviously setting and uh, the age group that you decide to tackle and, you know, how the people that you know are kind of, you know, in, you know, are in, in inspiration or influences for your characters. Oh. <laughs> Well, let it, maybe it'd help if I started by saying, you, describing what we're talking about here yeah. in Defro. Perfect. And uh, the, the 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 premise is uh, this small town um, in the Colorado Rockies uh, that 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 would be familiar, I think, to a lot of Wyoming and certainly Colorado listeners. Um, Every small town, though, Cheyenne, Laramie, Sheridan, doesn't matter. Uh, every small town everywhere has a bunch, has a diner. And in the diner, there's a bunch of old guys who gather on most mornings to fix what's wrong with the world. They, they tell tales. They poke fun at each other. They remember their glory days. And they argue about, you know, the best car batteries. Um the diner in this fictional town, Midnight, Colorado, is no different. Uh, there are six or seven old farts who get together all in their 70s or 80s uh, with their best days behind them. And they call themselves Death Row. Now, you're, for your listeners, I need to make the point that at Death, D-E-A-F, as in hard of hearing, not, you know, soon to be executed. <laughs> and that's why they call themselves Death Row, because they line up and they're a bunch of old guys who can barely hear each other. One of them is a retired Denver homicide detective named Woodrow Bell. His friends call him Mountain Bell, and that's only important to people of a certain age who will remember the days before uh, the new AT&T, when there were all those different Bell companies out there, and one of them was Mountain Bell. He's this crusty, cynical, de 
a reclusive old detective who who he's he's done with that life and he just wants to fade away um when his closest friend who's a retired priest who has his own unorthodox past uh brings uh bell this long forgotten old murder case from this small town his his first reaction is to well it's his first reaction and with everything is to grumble and growl and and you know stay as far away from it as he can but the more he learns the more he can't look away it's just who he is the problem is that he's just a retired cop uh, he has none of the high-tech forensic tools that he once had in the in Denver. He isn't taken seriously by the local cops. Uh, he's kind of flat-footed. All he really has is Defro, this motley crew of old guys who 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 have some skills from back in their glory days that sometimes they don't even realize they have. And so together they get in on this investigation that quickly proves to be bigger and badder than anybody imagined when they uh, when they realize they might be chasing a serial killer who's still active. So um, that's the classical mystery part of Death Row. That that's why mystery writer or readers pick up mysteries. That's what they want. A crime and they want an investigation. But it's not just a crime story. It's also about men growing old. So there's this element uh, of, of a more literary storytelling, even though I don't think the book is necessarily a literary novel by any stretch. Uh, but it, it does explore, you know, men who've who feel they've outlived their best days and are are now just growing invisible that they they they've they've they're long past their sell by date and that nobody cares anymore and i think that's i think that's what's so fascinating about this you know age group is cuz you don't see a lot of i guess television or you know necessarily content. I think if we're getting better at it. And so, you know, in terms of, you know, I can remember grumpier old men or grumpy old men growing up, but it was comedy, right? right? It's not incredibly serious. It's definitely poking fun at, you know, the at aging. And so, uh, and the movie that just came out this, this past weekend, 80 for Brady, right? And so a bunch of, you know, older women who decide that they're going to go to the Super Bowl together. And exactly. so I think the content aspect is getting better in terms, but deciding you know did you decide to write from this aspect of age because of your own identification or did you want something specifically for this for an age group that maybe be underrepresented in terms of it's not necessarily you know quote-unquote sexy you know so to speak to you to be aging right you know and so so I guess that's that's what I'm curious about no you know uh, the, the 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 sort of cardinal rule for any writer is to write what you know and you know having just entered social security age um you know i'm a rookie compared to these guys but um th there was this element to me that this is what i know 
and and it is underrepresented in our media. Um, I didn't. I, I don't. I I don't think that was a part of my thinking, but it's a part of what everybody wants to talk about is. Uh, how come we don't see more of this? Well, the the reason is because a uh, the 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 marketing skews toward younger people. It always has uh, the eighteen to thirty four age bracket is really the sweet spot. Uh, the other the other thing in book marketing is that you know. Th- three quarters of all buyers are women. And that doesn't mean they're that three quarters of the readers are women. Maybe those women are buying for men who read them, but, but uh, the publishing industry skews toward uh, appealing to, to the woman buyer in mystery in particular, the trend right now is in, uh, female-driven stories. My friends Chuck Box and uh, Craig Johnson, notwithstanding, um, they have sort of, pardon the terminology, they've got grandfathered uh, subjects and grandfathered characters that readers love and they will always love. So yeah, they're Pickett they're not going away, but in new publishing, yeah. yeah, in new publishing, they're just skewing toward women. So uh, that's just the reality on the ground. To me, I was writing about people that I knew, and and this this whole story came up years ago, maybe ten or twelve years ago, when I was talking to an elderly friend of mine. Um, lived in the Northwest and, and we were just talking about the things people talk about, just friends talk about. And he just let drop that he's part of a little coffee club in his hometown. And they, because they're all hard of hearing, they call themselves death row. And at that moment, in a blink of an eye, this, this premise popped into my brain. I didn't know who they would be, what crime they would be pursuing, but I thought this is a this is a perfect setup for a story. I had enjoyed so much success with true crime that the, the, the that there was no um diverging from writing true crime at that point. My team, my agents and editors and that sort of thing were all saying, no, you're, you've got a market, you've got fans, you've got people who buy your true crime books. They don't care about anything else. They don't care about this. They're, they're, you would be starting over if you did that. So it just went to the back of my mind. And uh, as I said, it didn't even become a reality uh, until COVID came along and said, you can't go outside. Right. Well, and I, I, I mean, and maybe that's a little bit short-sighted on your team's part. I mean, I understand, right. You got a good thing going and you're, you're an incredible right. true crime writer. And so, you know, and Allison Gerald is phenomenal. And so, and as well as 
shadow man i mean your your writing is is solid there it is very very good and so you know i can understand why they would want you to keep focusing on doing that because it's working well and so but right. the thing that i'm finding just being in in the space that i am is you know we're starting to see podcast hosts of true crime venturing into fictional crime writing and so and i think that there is this aspect of you know art in or art being influenced by life right a lot of what you did in this book was pulling from all of your experience and i don't know if that's a piece and we can totally omit this if this isn't but one of the things that you said was the the monologue of your (laughs) end of the serial killer you know having his big monologue was kind of a combination of quotes, right? From from known serial killers. Exactly. A lot of what I come across in my my uh, both my journalism, where I spent a lot of time as a, a police and courts reporter and reporting on crime and trials and that sort of thing, and then my true crime author life um, is is in desperate death row um the the crime that that i have in death row is is inspired by two real life crimes that i've written about in my journalism although not in other books so fact even underlies my fiction uh and in the death row sequel that i'm writing right now I'm lightly fictionalizing another real case, um, which I'm researching as vigorously as if I were writing one of my true crimes. So, so I think that will find its way in there. That's what I do. That that's where that's my wheelhouse where I feel comfortable. That makes sense. Um, I think that brought up the uh, the the there in the final scenes where. Uh, Bell and the bad guy are having a running dialogue. I picked uh, real quotes from real, no notable killers and serial killers, and and he put them in the mouth of this fictional bad guy because I it uh, as I say in in the. Uh, in the end, the the monsters are real. I, I you know I can make up this story. I can you can take some solace in knowing that this is this is fiction. But in a sense, it's not fiction. These some of these things you were reading are real, and those words were real. So, but I I think you're right. I I think that true crime stories are so popular right now i it only makes sense for us to deconstruct them in fiction i think it's um our fascination has become part of the story uh, mystery mystery novels have been popular from the very beginning um by recycling and reinventing familiar stuff pose Murders in the Rue Morgue, which is considered the sort of original mystery, was likely inspired by this moment in crime history when urban expansion was outpacing uh, the ability of cities to build professional law enforcement forces. 
So right. this was on the minds of people and they were afraid of this stuff. Um, crime fiction, uh, like death row deliberately exploits your real world anxieties. I mean, and that's, that's what it's doing. Fear sells crime books, true or not. Uh, no, killers who think about, you know, killers who might sneak into some college girls' apartments uh, or madmen who open fire in dance halls. Uh, what else? Terrorists who might use an innocuous balloon to drop killer viruses or re radioactive dust. That sounds like fiction, but it's real. Definitely. And it's a genuine possibility. So, and, and you know what? It works both ways, too. We've actually seen some crimes that were inspired by fiction. Um, you know, we've seen actual crimes that that were based on the, the killer's obsessions with uh, Slender Man or oh, right. Freddy Krueger or the movie Saw, just to make a just to name a few. So uh, it kind of goes back and forth. Art imitates life, imitates art, imitates life. There's there's no clean cut. No. And, you know, it's just, it's all interconnected in the way that it works. And so, because you're absolutely right, there is this symbiotic relationship between art and life and how it feeds back and forth to one another. And I do think that there is, I talk about this a lot in class, my students, especially when we're doing true crime or covering a true crime unit in that typically students or people who are interested in horror in, it kind of develops from true crime, right? And so, exactly. that, yeah, getting close to this adrenaline or this really intense feeling of fear in a controlled setting, you start looking for, you know, a pure horror genre or are going for that. But there is a really close connection between why we consume true crime and why you would con consume horror. And I don't think a lot of people think about that, obviously, this right <laughs> academics here, <laughs> and, you know, but it's, it is very closely related. Well, they and are. And I think, it, and I think it's because the criminal mind has always fascinated us. Um, anytime uh, an especially deviant crime happens, our, our rational minds want to put things back in order. You know, we, we want to make sense out of that. So we ask, well, why did this happen? I just think uh, that's not surprising. I, I think despite the, the proliferation of media these days, I really believe this goes back to the beginnings of mankind. I, and we might've talked about this before, but humans have always wanted to know uh, what are the threats that are out there? You know, how, how can I be safe? And how can I avoid dying unnecessarily? Um, I, I, I think our media landscape has changed and it has increased our fascination, but I still think it arises from that uh, sort of ancient feeling that um, there are monsters in the dark and we need, we want to uh, know what they are and how to, how to avoid becoming victims. True crime, I think, 
has that scary element that these are real monsters that were in the dark. Crime fiction has always had the, these are these are possibilities. Uh, and then when I uh, maybe I guess when true crime and crime fiction kind of blend like they do, say in Death Row, uh, we're not sure what to be afraid of anymore, except that everything is a threat. So I don't know. I don't know. Right. And and I think that there is an aspect too. I was I actually had this really interesting book club yesterday and we were talking about this in especially women, you know, being drawn to true crime. And so it's fascinating because there's a true crime umbrella and what really sells and you know, these true crime networks and, and everything really focus on intimate partner violence, right? And, you know, that type of scenario. And and so, you know, most men tend to stay away from that, but they'll watch war crime or gang crime or cartel crime, you know, anything like that, but it's not to them, it's not the same right. true crime as intimate partner violence or, you know, you know, stalking or, or whatever it is. And so women definitely tend to gear towards that intimate partner violence because they're making sure that they're doing their homework, right? They want to make sure they can identify <laughs> all the red flags they possibly can to make sure that they do stay safe or keep you know, the other women or partners in their lives safe as well to say, hey, this guy's giving me or this person's giving me bad vibes. I don't really think this is a good idea. And it's because of this reason. I saw this case reminded me of. And, you know, and I think that is a huge aspect of our makeup going back that his, you know, kind of ancient piece that you're talking about that we're looking for those red flags. We're looking for those danger caution signs and alarms to go off to keep ourselves and others that we love safe and so in a weird way it's twofold right we get to you entirely and i and i think that is a driving factor in the marketplace um it's uh i don't know i think that uh if it's easy to fool ourselves into thinking that we will get those clues and then we will master those crew clues um, because the, the, the serial killers look like Charles Manson. Right. right. And, and back in the day of Charles Manson, they, then it was easy to see the bad guys. They're, they're a little freaky. Well, what, what our true crime I think has proven to us now is that they don't all look like Charles Manson and they don't all, that they aren't wild apes prowling the streets of Paris. They're not, they are us. They are you and me. And uh, they are your next door neighbors and they take vacations and they have kids and uh, they sit with you in the stands at those sporting events. Uh, It's, if you want to know what's scary, that's scary. It's not Buffalo Bill of Thomas Harris and Hannibal Lecter fame. It's not Hannibal Lecter. It's not Charles Manson. It's more like Dennis Rader. It's more like BTK or Gary Ridgway. These innocuous looking, ordinary looking, even nerdy looking guys who turn out to be freaks of nature. Right. They're almost invisible. That's what scares me. Yeah. They're almost invisible. I think that's what's so terrifying is when you, when we do find out who these people are and we do see them, we, I don't think you would be able to 
you know, pull them off the street and pick them out. Right. And so they knew, and I had full body chills when you said they are you and me, they are us, because that is incredibly true. We wanted to be somebody who we can spot and be like, that's a, that's a bad person right there. And we can stay away from them. But most of the time predators, right. These predatorial people are, are, they know how to blend in. They know (laughs) how to, prey on vulnerable people. They they know how to get what it is that they want. And that is what's really scary. And we want to think that we're we have a some extra sensor in our body that goes off when we come into contact with somebody who has bad juju or bad energy or bad vibe or bad aura or whatever you call it. But it's not always the case. And that's why these things still happen. It's it's absolutely seldom the case. I mean, these people are able to operate because they are so good at the manipulation, so good at the charm. Uh, And once you uh, study the forensic psychology of socio and psychopaths, you see um, these guys are in the NFL of manipulation. And unless you are in the NFL of criminal psychology, you're going to be a victim. And I think that a, a downside of the 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 market being primarily female in true crime and crime crime in general um, is that a lot that there a lot of them surrender to the urge to I can fix this guy and they write letters to them in prison. I see that the Idaho the accused Idaho uh, guy is, has been receiving letters um already and he you know um there's i i i think i've been ejected from at least one facebook group for true crime fans because one morning i i dropped in and somebody had posted a poll that that asked if you could date any serial killer, who would it be? Gross. And I sort of lost my mind. I, I just sort of went a little crazy. Um, and and I just, um, I'm, I'm frightened on their behalf, but I also don't want to believe that such stupid people live among us. Uh, that's just wrong. And, and by the way, Ted Bundy comes out, you know, head and shoulders above the rest. Rodney Alcala is kind of close second. Um, <laughs> but uh, there, uh, unbelievably, uh, Richard Ramirez gets in the top five. But, uh, it's, you know, I, it just, it, it embarrasses me to be in this part of the industry when I realize that a lot of those people who fantasize about dating serial killers are people who read my books. Right. And uh, I, 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 it embarrasses me. I'll leave it, it at that. <laughs> it is a weird part of the community, right? And so in terms of the genre itself and that, and, and I think we can see that with obviously what happened with the phenomenon and craze of the Dahmer series, right? Sure. Evan Pierce, who's an incredible actor, who, when he's not Ted Bundy, is decently attractive. 
And people were just going wild for it. And in a way that was incredibly disturbing about, oh, he's so hot. I would totally be with Jeffrey Dahmer. It's like, he he ate people, y'all. Like, he did some really horrendous things. This isn't a joke. This is this is somebody's trauma that we're talking about. And so I think that there is this weird boundary or line that maybe people who potentially need some help don't know that yeah, they're I crossing. think people on this side of the line. Right. Yeah, they don't know that they're crossing when they're talking about serial killers in that yeah. way. Right? Uh, well, you know, if he said to you, um, Renee, I'd love to have you for dinner, you'd, you'd know what he meant. <laughs> I think mean, those people don't always really realize what he means. Right. I totally agree. And, and it's, it's, you know, I laugh because it's, it's outrageous. And so, but this is, this is, these are real conversations that, that people have and, and it is. And and I think both you and I have had this conversation many times about ethical true crime sourcing and not engaging in trauma tourism and telling stories for people who can't tell their own stories. And so when I think about Alison Gerald you wrote that story for the boys and their mother, right? Because they never have had the chance to tell their story. They're still listed as missing persons on DCI. Yes, that's right. And you know, they are, uh, they are probably going to be forever on that list. Uh, it's, it's sad. I, I also wrote it for the detectives who over, you know, 30 plus years stuck to this case, each of them, you know, what about five or six of them in there with different agencies and different issues. And, but when one guy would drop it, another one would come along pretty soon and pick it up. And there's, if, if something happened to you, or something happened to your loved one, those people were the kind of people that I hoped, the kind of detectives that I hope would be on the case. And I think you would hope would be on that case. You would hope that it wouldn't take them 30 plus years to close the case, but you hope they wouldn't give up after five. Right. I, and I, totally agree. Uh, I think they were heroes in that respect by just doing their job they, they became heroes and I was writing about them too. And so there's a certain reassurance to the rest of us. If you're going to read a true crime book and try to get a clue about reality and what's out there, I, I would hope you're finding good things too and finding a reason to believe in law enforcement these days Law enforcement takes a lot of knocks, and some of them are deserved. Uh, but there are still good people in in law enforcement who we, if something were to happen to you or me or our loved ones, they would be the kinds of people that we hoped were on the case. Definitely, definitely. I think that's that's a well said, and. And I can see that maybe where some of that inspiration is connected to, obviously, your lead in Death Row, right? That kind of old, rugged hero 
but doesn't really see himself in that way, but definitely ha- acts heroically nonetheless. Yeah, and he has to be real. He can't be a, a, a knight in shining armor. He, he has to be real. And so uh, Bell, the the real detective in the book, and all the other guys who are not real detectives and aren't, aren't even contributing sometimes in a witting way. You know, they're 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 accidentally contributing sometimes, uh, but uh, they're they're flawed people. You know, they have flaws. I should say it that way. They're not flawed people in so much in as much as they are people who have flaws, just like the rest of us. And I do think. You know, the early vibe that I'm getting is that people are seeing their uncles and their next door neighbors and their grandfathers and their dads uh, in these in the story. And um, the best compliment that's been paid to me uh, has been I hate it. I I was starting to dread the end of the book because they were going to be gone. They, they they were they were not going to be in my you know in my mind anymore. So uh, that, that's the kind of people you want to create. Right. Um, the the person that I wanted Bell to be had to be suggested or enhanced, I guess, by the kind of person I wanted the bad guy to be because this this is a meaningless exercise. If we're going after a jaywalker. So the, the bad guy had to be truly bad. Right. Um, Or the adversary, the, the the greater the evil, then the greater the hero. And, and so it, it had to be, as you say, the worthy adversary. Makes sense. I, I picture, and I don't know if you're familiar with this series or not. It's on ID, but uh, Homicide Detective. Did you ever watch Homicide Detective? I I hate to admit um, (laughs) to the world on your podcast that, no, I don't know. (laughs) That's okay. That's okay. I trust you. He's he's an old, retired detective, and he's just kind of this growly not surly, but he doesn't smile and he doesn't really laugh. And so it's really weird that he's so engaging because, and he, he reminds me a little bit of, um, what was that? The smoke man from X-Files. Do you remember that? Oh, sure. Yeah. That yeah. Character. He kind of reminds me of him, but he's this detective that had an incredible career in Colorado Springs. And he goes back and he tells his stories of cases that he solved and there's reenactments that are happening. And so it's the same guy. That's always him. So it's kind of fun to watch, but, uh, and so, but he's just kind of this gray haired, you know, almost gray skin looking guy who sits there and, you know, is retelling these stories and just isn't there's, it's a little monotone, but he has enough engagement. It's really fascinating. You should check out an episode because it's strangely captivating in the way that he delivers. And for some reason, I do see Joe Kenda in my, in my head, John Kenda in my head as I, no, as I Joe, I know who you're talking about now, Joe Kenda, of course. Yeah. Joe Kenda. Uh, oh, now I know. Yeah. I, <laughs> I should study titles better. Uh, Joe <laughs> Kenda is that. 
And yep. while he didn't enter into my head as I'm imagining uh, Mountain Bell, but uh, it, the detective is a, a kind of uh, pastiche of a lot of these old de- uh, cops that I know. Uh, and, and I, you know, with, with only a few exceptions, they are crusty, grumbly, uh, cynical old farts and, uh, they're fun. Uh, they're, you know, you're not going to want to go party with them, um, unless you want to get really drunk, really fast in a really smoky place that's kind (laughs) of scary. Right. Yeah. Maybe, maybe copy is the safe bet in that situation. (laughs) So no, I, I think it's great run. Congratulations. I think this, you know, what an incredible accomplishment, 19 books and counting. And it sounds like you're working on already death row too. So I I am. And I'm also um, sort of scouting a new true crime too. And it, um, it's in the formative stages and that might be popping up in the near future too. But um, right at the moment, I'm writing the uh, sequel to Death Row, same cast, uh, a few uh, new little things popping up. Um, There were some deliberate loose ends in Death Row that I will address and probably introduce a few new ones, uh, in part two, but, uh, it's that I just love the guys too. I, I'm having a good time. They don't, there's something schizophrenic when a writer says, when my characters talk to me, um, (laughs) voices in your head is not a good thing. Right. Uh, But I am, I am interested. I'm intrigued by how I behave on their behalf. So while I don't have conversations with them, I do think differently for each of these guys and for many of the character. There are other characters in this book, but um, that's just fun. It's a great mental exercise that a true crime writer doesn't do. Right. It's a it's a different headspace for sure. It, it completely. I don't make up characters. I don't make up dialogue or settings or anything else it is what it is it it, i'm just telling it um the only thing i would make up is is how it goes together how how it's structured how how it becomes a chapter but uh in fiction that's not the case you're you're in control of everything uh so uh it, it was fun it really was fun well I'm excited to see how it performs and how it does. I know it's going to be, it already seems like it's a huge hit just from things that I'm seeing this, this past week and following your page and, you know, congratulations again. And I know, I know Wyoming's proud of you. So thank you for being on the show again, Ron. We really appreciate you. Thank you for making time for me, Renee. I, I truly appreciate it. Good afternoon, Devere. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Great. What do you have from DCI for us today? Sure. So this week was fairly quiet. The Cheyenne Police Department asked for assistance in locating a juvenile runaway that was found shortly after. DCI has removed two cases from Laramie County, and they've added one new case. Justin Reed, age 41, was last seen February 1st in Lander. He's a white male, approximately 5'6", 125 pounds. 
with hazel eyes and brown hair. He was last seen wearing a gray, red, white, and blue sweater. He's in need of medication that he does not have with them at this time. Anyone with information, please contact Fremont County Sheriff's Office at 307-332-5611. And of course, with all cases, you can contact Wyoming DCI at 307-777-7181. They also have the option to submit tips anonymously on their website. Well, it's amazing to always hear when there's kind of a quiet week. So that's not something that we can complain about. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I'm glad to see it. Folks, thanks for joining me this week. I hope you enjoyed the break from cases, but we're still able to get your true crime fix by listening to my interview with Ron. I have Ron's website linked in the show notes so you can find where to get your copy of Death Row, which came out this week, February 14th. But if you can, please try to support your local bookstore. I'll chat with you next week.